The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. God, we're reminded this morning that in you we live and move and have our being, <laughs> even in the moments we're not fully aware of you, you are still no less present with us. God, I pray that uh, as your people this morning, we will remember whose we are, we are yours. Uh, with all the highs and lows of our lives, uh, we are no, no more and no less completely yours. I pray this morning that we will um, enjoy thoughts of you planted in our hearts and minds by your spirit. It will make us just sing your praises and prepare us for a life of enjoying you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Refuge Church, I want to start um, this sermon by sharing actually one of those comics in the paper that this morning I read. So uh, I never thought I'd really be a morning person, but with Elliot, I wake up at 5.30 every morning now, and um, it's good. (laughs) It's a good habit. But this, um, and then we make coffee um, if... Uh, we have run out of coffee, which happens once or twice a week. As we go through a lot of it, uh, then we are reduced to black tea and, uh, and we're grumpy for the rest of the day. Uh, but with our coffee, then I read the paper. And, uh, and this morning in the paper, you probably can't see this comic, so I'll read it for you. It says, write the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Example, thoughts and prayers. I thought that was very appropriate for preaching about prayer because what this comic is saying is that there's nothing more insane than praying. And I think sometimes we feel that way, right? Sometimes we feel uh, in, in these moments of doubt that, why am I doing this? Is anyone listening? Is anyone hearing? And, and we can sometimes feel that in frustration when on television we hear someone say, well, I'm offering my thoughts and prayers for this. And we're like, really? Will that really make a difference. And so in our sermon series, Talking to God, and especially today looking at the story of Hagar, we're going to hopefully answer that question. Does prayer make a difference at all? Does prayer matter? So uh, I know you're like, wow, this is interesting. Um, Let me read our intro and then we'll dive into our, our sermon series on Uh, Genesis 16. Lord, teach us to pray. This request from Jesus' disciples not only expressed their personal desire, but offers their impressions of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' life was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person who desires to know God. Lord, teach us to pray. The intimacy that we desire is available to each one of us. Now, there are a few statements that 
strike me as being more hurtful than the statement, you aren't welcome here. You aren't welcome here. When I hear that statement, the first picture that comes to mind is of a little girl, six years old, being uh, walked to school every day by four U.S. Marshals. That's Ruby Bridges um, in 1960. For a whole year, she was walked to school and class to class by four U.S. Marshals. Imagine how hard it would be to fit in at a new school if you were walked from one class to another to the lunchroom and back by four U.S. Marshals. It was a sacrifice her whole family made. Her father lost his job. The grocery store wouldn't sell their family any food. And yet for a full year, this is what they went through. In 1963, Sonny Hereford the fourth, also six years old, was the first one to desegregate the schools of Alabama. Six years old, and there's this powerful picture that you can see uh, if you just look up his name, Sonny Hereford the fourth, and it is of a little boy, six years old, getting walked by his father, Sonny Hereford the third, to school. And and I, I tell you what, Hannah and I have talked a lot about. Uh, how scared we already are about sending Elliot to school. Uh, you know, Anna, from the moment we started talking about marriage, she was like, you know, I'm not going to homeschool. And then we had Elliot, and she's like, we're homeschooling. Um, <laughs> it's just this thought of, <laughs> of you know, uh, this one that's so precious to us, possibly getting bullied. And then you see Ruby Bridges, you see Sunny here for the fourth uh, going to school, and then, and then the panouts, right, that you see of, of mobs yelling, six-year-olds, these six-year-olds, trying to keep them from going to school. I, I, I called my mom to talk uh, about specifically this time of Sonny Hereford in 1963 because my, my uh, grandfather was stationed uh, down the road in Alabama at that same time. And 1963, and my mom remembers those six months. He was in officer training school, and, and she remembers those as actually wonderful times and has a, a specific, especially vivid memory of Thanksgiving, where all the families of the officers got together, you know, six months together, and so they, they bonded really quickly. And so she, she called her father, my grandfather, before he passed away, and, and asked about this time. And he said, you know, what you probably don't remember is in 1963, we had one, one of the families was an African-American family, one of the officers in the training. And we, uh, we wanted to celebrate Thanksgiving all together. And no restaurant in Montgomery, Alabama would take this squadron of officers in training and their families because of the one African-American family. They were, they were not allowed at any of the restaurants. And so they, she remembers going to this, this large private home in the country and then having the greatest time. All she remembers is all the kids running around together. That's all they remember of, of the Thanksgiving. And yet she didn't know this backstory to it. Uh, when I was talking to him on FaceTime, my dad reminded me of the story of, of uh, his older sister, Deb, who went to South Kitsap High School. She was the homecoming queen, and the homecoming king was the star athlete of the school, an African-American young man. And because they were going together, 
Someone anonymously sent my dad's family a clipping from the newspaper of my aunt and the homecoming king and said, shame on you. That's South Kitsap. Um, What does it feel like, that feeling of you aren't welcome here? You know, we see a lot of unrest in our country, right? And this is what we're talking about, these stories. The one of my... (laughs) My dad's family in South Kitsap is just 1971. That's not a long time ago. And so as we are wrestling through the pain in our country that for many of us, because we can, because we want to, we we kind of just want to stop hearing about or talking about it, but it is this pain. We don't want you here. We don't want you here. That is what was heard, felt, held on to for so long. We're confronted by this pain. We are so confronted by this pain constantly right now. What do we do with it? What do we do with these pictures of pain that we see in the newspaper or the pain of the homeless man that that we saw struggling outside of Fred Meyer yesterday? Uh, Obviously not fully mentally there. The pain of a friend who's crushed between... uh, what their life was and the personal tragedy they've just experienced. And so the big question we ask, right, the question we're asking today is, does God notice these things and does God care about them? And what difference, if anything, does prayer actually make? And that is where we get to the story of Hagar, a young woman who is not wanted Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 16. We're going to take this in two parts. The story uh, begins with three characters, and then we focus in on on one of the characters, characters, which is Hagar. So Genesis 16, verses 1, going through verse 6. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. This is a painful story. This is a deeply painful story. There's probably a lot of it that you'll want me to unpack that I might touch on some of it, might not touch on other parts of it. Um, It doesn't really help to talk culturally about what's normal back then because it's still uncomfortable, right? (laughs) You still read it. And even if you say culturally it was okay for someone to give their slave to the guy, and it's still just terrible, right? There's no way to read this and be like, that's okay. It wasn't okay. And we see the results of it not being okay. The reason why we're here 
is because they are in a time of waiting. Jake preached a great sermon last week, fully unpacking the chapter before. And so if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back because Abraham just had this incredible experience with God. I mean, literally supernatural things are happening, like, like, like fire going through cut animals, like just crazy stuff. And these supernatural experiences that Abraham came away fully convinced that God was gonna fulfill his promise of descendants that were so numberless that they couldn't be counted, just like the stars in the sky couldn't be counted. And Abram trusted that God was gonna do this amazing thing. And so um, my guess is he expected that he'd go back home, him and his wife would, you know what, and then he'd have a child. And then from that child, more children and more children and then numberless descendants. But this didn't happen. He went home and Sarai remained barren. She remained seemingly unable to have children. And it seems like about 10 years had passed and they're still waiting, waiting, waiting. What had been promised did not happen. And it doesn't mean Abram didn't have faith. It says very clearly before he had faith and that faith was counted as righteousness, but his righteousness seems to be getting rusty after a long way has ever happened to you. <laughs> you're like, man, I'm so convinced. This is, and then all of a sudden you're like, ur, 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 you know, and you're, you're just not sure. Did God really say that? Did he mean that? Did he mean me? Did he mean somebody else? What? And you, you probably replay over and over and over again what had happened, trying to remember what God had said. And so they got tired of waiting. And so they start taking, Right? I'm done with waiting. We're just going to take from God what he has promised. We're going to make it happen. Maybe God needs a little help. Maybe God, you know, maybe he's forgot. So, so Sarah, the wife, comes up with a strategy. Uh, the promise has not yet been fulfilled. The promise came to Abram. And, and we actually have not had the promise of who the mother will be, even though we have a promise who the father will be. Later, the, the promise is clarified. It will be Sarai, who becomes Sarah. But at this point, we only know the promise of the father. So Sarai, probably at this point, is going, man, well, we know it's you. We don't know it's me, maybe. And so they devise a plan. Hagar is the plan. And Hagar, in this whole first six verses, a lot's happening here. Hagar has no voice. She's silent, she complies, and she conceives a child. Now, once this plan has, has happened, and I, I want you to imagine all these times you've schemed in your life. You're like, God's told you something, and you're like, you go for it. And, and what are the results of that? What are the responses of that? Well, they each respond in different ways, and each one isn't a great response. First, Sarai. After the child is conceived, you see in Sarai dissatisfaction that results in anger. What she thought would be the, the coming to a fruition of a promise wasn't, and so she's dissatisfied and lower than she was before, and that makes her angry. And so she begins mistreating Hagar. Abraham, or Abram at this time, what he sees in his home, right, is disunity. All of a sudden, everyone, like, what might have been a semi-peaceful, like, we're just waiting situation, all of a sudden leads to disunity and a, a complete abdication of his role. 
his role of being the one who's heard the promise to keep faithfully reminding other people of the promise, right? No, no, I, I'm positive, right? I'm positive this is what happened. But he completely, I mean, and just whatever he's getting suggests, he's like, sure, let's just do that. Hagar, the result of this is her despising Sarai. And, and there's not a lot we know about this act of despising. It could have been Hagar kind of proudly going, well, I could conceive and you couldn't. However this, this looks, it leads to her being turned against Abraham and Sarah. There's no indication we have before that of their relationship. But what we know after that, it's one of despising and anger. And so she runs away. And, and I imagine if this is a movie we're watching at this point, the camera just follows Hagar for the next uh, verses till the very end of, end of the chapter. So the next nine verses, it's as, as if as Hagar runs away, the camera follows her and we see the rest of her story, which is fascinating. In the scope of scripture, we have Abraham whose faith was counted as righteousness and is the father of faith, but he is for the rest of the chapter ignored along with Sarai. And we focus on Hagar. This is very special. So as the camera follows her, follow with me as we read verses seven to the end of the, the chapter. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you'll give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. What a description. Uh, he'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Everyone's hand will be against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Ber La Roy, which is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. We see three really distinct movements in, in this story of Hagar in relationship with God. The first is, the kids are just traumatized by the story so far, and I totally get it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, so the first movement is that she that God finds Hagar. The second is God questions Hagar, and then the third is that God sees Hagar. I it's so curious how how the the movement changes in this from from this like activity of disruption in the camp of Abraham to all of the sudden. Hagar at a well and God finding her. It just happens like that. It's as if there's no time that's lapsed between Hagar stepping outside of the tent and her arriving at this well, this undisclosed location that is somewhere on the way to Shur, which we only know that's kind of in the direction of Egypt. So we think she was probably heading back home to Egypt. 
And the Lord finds her there. God finds her there. I absolutely love this. How I love this because I'm profoundly uncomfortable also with this, which is I don't know why God found her there versus finding her earlier. And I think this is really helpful as we ask, where is God when I pray? Why hasn't God responded here and now or in this location? We aren't given an explanation for why God finds Hagar in this middle place between here and an unknown there. There are a lot of possibilities, and I think we often go through possibilities in our own minds. Maybe God wanted to meet with her alone. Maybe she just needed to get a little lower. Maybe she was so full of despising Sarah that she, or Sarah that she wasn't ready to hear yet. We don't, we don't know these things. What we do know, this is what we do know, and this is brilliant, is that by the time she leaves, the result is courageous faith and a confidence to return to a place that seemed a place that she would never want to return to. So we don't know what has happened. We don't know a lot of those whys, but we know when she meets with God, she's able to return to a place with courageous faith and confidence. And the the turning point is when God begins asking her questions. And and I'm not going to fully unpack this, but this mirrors in so many ways Jesus' meeting with the woman at the well. Both women who are outcasts, both women who have essentially been communicated to, you aren't wanted here. When God meets both those women's, women by themselves alone at a well and asks them questions, they go back being known and confident. It's crazy. So hold that up, John 4, Genesis 16. This is the first time in all of the scripture that we, are, we meet the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is commonly understood as Jesus throughout, um, throughout our understanding of him showing up throughout scripture. And one of the reasons we see that here is she, she calls the angel of the Lord, God, you are God. You've seen me. God has seen me. God met me in this place. But God doesn't make the encounter easy on her, right? This, this woman, Hagar, who's so strong, right? Amazingly strong, who's, who's gone out somewhere between here and there, and God meets her. God doesn't just start by going, man, you've, you've had it so hard. God starts by asking her very difficult questions. Questions that might seem brutal in what they are pointing out in her life. These two questions are simply, where have you come from and where are you going? And the interesting thing is, Hagar answers the first but doesn't answer the second. Hagar knows where she's come from, but Hagar really doesn't know where she's going. And it's very similar when Jesus asked the woman at the well, go call your husband. And what, is, what does the woman at the well say? Well, I, I don't have a husband, right? And, and what he's unearthing here in Hagar is, I know where I'm coming from, but honestly, I don't know where I fit in the world right now. That's what, that's the truth. That's the reality that's coming up in Hagar's heart and mind. And then God, Jesus here asks something 
that seems like it should never be asked of her. Two things, go back and submit to Sarai. How in the world could you ask that? And the reason why you can ask that is because he gives her something way better, which is a promise and a blessing. God gives her a promise, a promise that sounds very similar to the promise just made to Abraham before. Your descendants will be numberless. Now it's different. He didn't say through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He actually says your, your descendants is going to be this wild donkey of a man's going to be, you know, that's vigorous and at odds with his brothers. And that's true as you look through history, what happens? But she hears this promise. She hears God speak to her, something that still is full of what, how, why, but God has met her. And what is Hagar's response to this divine encounter? This divine encounter that still leaves you and I asking so many questions. She responds with trust. And I think this is so special because oftentimes when we come to these moments with God for moments of conflict and unknowing, God does something special in us in that divine encounter, in that moment that when we tell other people, they're like, what? Like God really convinced you telling you that? And you're like, yeah, he saw me. And that's what happens. All it seems like is that Hagar just wanted to be seen. She wanted to be known for who she is. And that's what she says, God sees me. And doesn't this sound so much like the woman at the well? He told me everything I ever did, right? This response that Hagar gives and the response that the woman at the well gives to anyone's ears would seem ludicrous. And this is why. If, <laughs> if I ran out of this building and I was like, they know everything I ever did. People would be like, okay, like, is that a good thing? But when God knows everything we've ever done, when God sees us through and through and still wants us, what does that do, right? If you saw everything I ever did, thought was, I would probably wrestle with some shame. Like, man, they know too much about, like, that was a little too vulnerable, this sermon. <laughs> you know, but, but to be seen by God and to be known by God for all that you have been, all that you are, and all that you will be, and to still have God look at you and go, I want you. My promise is for you. You have a blessing on your life. Then you leave with confidence, right? To do anything that he would ask of you that might even seem crazy. Whew. Isn't that amazing? This is when I think Paul, I'm, I'm in 1 Corinthians in my personal reading, and when he's constantly like, this is foolish, I know this sounds stupid, and it just sounds crazy to you, but he's met Jesus. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, and his life changed. And so when he goes and he's explaining it to people, it's like, until you've encountered God, I, all I can do is communicate what I've seen and known. And it still probably won't make a lot of sense until you meet him. But that's what I want. I want you to meet God. Now remember, what this sermon series is about is about prayer. And prayer is, as we defined, access to God for those who know they need him. That is simply prayer, access to God for those that know they need him. Both these women, the woman at the well and, the, and Hagar, came to the point where they knew they needed God. God has seen them and God wanted them, and that is prayer. This moment where we are reduced to us and God. 
Now, uh, as Hagar returned, there's a lot we don't know about what happened when they returned. We know that Ishmael is given the full rights of a son as he, he comes. He's adopted as a son. He's a son. Um, we know there's, just reading the rest of the story, it's, all the complications aren't over. But what Hagar does in returning, I, I just want to call this walk of grace. You know, we're all familiar, if you've gone to college, you're familiar with the walk of shame, right? There's this like, when people do something they know they shouldn't do, and then they are ashamed about it. The walk of grace is when you've met God, and God's loved you through and through, and then the walk of grace is what? That, that you walk with confidence, knowing that what has happened, what is, and what will happen is covered by him. Though we don't know a ton about this, what we do know is this, and I think this is maybe one of the more profound uh, things to take away, is that this story was cherished. There's not a lot of stories told in the Bible for, for how many years it covers, right? Not a lot of stories, especially in this time frame, but Hagar's story is cherished. This is one of the few stories we get. And that means when Hagar went back and shared her story, it was believed. Now we see later Sarah and Abraham don't quite know what to do. There's, there's a lot, there's conflict still, but Hagar's story is still believed and cherished and we hold on to it. Isn't that amazing? That when, when she came back and shared it, Abraham, Abraham, who had also had that experience with God, I think hearing it goes, that was, you met God. I met him too, 10 years ago, and, and I'd come to a place in my waiting where I doubted, but I can't doubt anymore. <laughs> like his faith was probably restored hearing Hagar's story. Now, you might say to yourself, well, you're right, Daniel, that isn't, that is one of the few stories cherished. That is Hagar's story. That isn't my story. Does God notice me? I want to just read a couple uh, passages for you. The first is in Psalm 139. The second is Matthew 6. To this question of, yeah, God noticed Hagar, but does God notice me? <clears throat> Psalm 139 says this. God, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind before me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn or settle on the far sides of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand holds me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light become night around me. Even the darkness will be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I am known full well. You are known and you are seen. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes, man, if not a sparrow falls to the ground without the notice of God, if he closed the lilies of the field, <laughs> you better be sure that he knows you. He knows your name and he knows the number of hairs on your head. 
Now, if God sees you and he is seeing you right now, the question that we should leave with is this, what does God see when he sees you? Now, that might be a scarier thought. (laughs) If God sees you through and through, if he sees your thoughts, if he knows the longings of your heart, what is he seeing with you? And some of us might feel like Hagar. We're caught in between here and there. We're in this middle ground, not sure if we're wanted anywhere. But I know maybe not all of us relate with Hagar. Some of you, unfortunately, might relate with Sarah, who's frustrated and angry, who, who has heard the promise of God and is trying to fulfill it with your own might and power. And you're trying so hard to fill it and you are angry with God. That might be where you're at. Or you might be Abram, who's heard the promise of God and you're sitting back doing nothing and the world's burning around you and you're like, well, I guess this is the way it works. This is what you wanted, God, you know? Some of us are just like passive. And, and maybe that's what God sees in you. Your heart needs to be jolted awake to remember and be faithful. Knowing where you are Knowing what God sees in you is probably a very good place to begin your prayer. God, who knows you and sees you, is always looking for you to put your trust in him. You must put your trust in him. Not focusing on the Hagar's or Abram's or Sarah's around you. So my encouragement for you this week is to find your well, and to sit down and take time to simply ask, what does God see in me? What does God see in me? (laughs) It's not that he doesn't already know. It's not that he didn't know Hagar the moment she'd walked out of her tent to leave. But that moment of aloneness where God met her and saw her through and through, and she left with confidence and courageous faith. That's my prayer for us this week. Pray with me, and then we'll take communion together. Oh God, we thank you for the uncomfortable parts of Scripture that preserve for us a truth for the present moment, that is so profoundly uncomfortable so much of the time. Thank you for speaking even now into these troubling times we find ourselves in. You are more than enough. Amen.